Welcome to TGI, Tourism Geography Insights, the podcast of Tourism Geography's journal where we discuss our latest research and developments of our peer-reviewed journal which explores tourism and tourism-related areas of recreation and leisure studies from a geographic perspective. Kira ora and welcome. I am Jeyeon Che co-host of the Tourism Geographies podcast brought to you by the journal Tourism Geographies. Our aim is to take scientific research on tourism and speak with authors about what this all means. Today, I'm speaking with Raul Bianchi at the Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK. Bula and welcome to the show, Raul. Over the next 15 minutes, I'll be talking to Raul about his work, The Critical Turn in Tourism Studies, a Radical Critic, published in Tourism Geographies. Thanks so much for joining us for TG Podcast, Raul. Um, I'll just straight to the first question, if you're ready. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, it's a great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me, Joe. Thank you so much for your time. Um, so for your um, paper, what question or problem was um, setting out to understand? So, so what did I set out to understand when I started this paper? It was, it was very serendipitous, uh, as we were just talking. Um, it was not really part of a plan or any kind of publication plan, partly because in those days there was less pressure in, in terms of what you were uh, writing about and where you were going to publish. And um, I actually can't recall the precise moment uh, when I decided to, to address the topic, which was... I guess can be summarized as uh, a critique or an interrogation of the critical turn or the critical tourism school that was just sort of beginning to emerge. And I'd read a couple of articles and, and then there was the second conference, I believe it was, in Split 2006, if my memory serves me correctly, to which oh, I... I was there actually, we, we met again. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> this often happens, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I don't remember much. I remember a few moments in that conference, but um, there, there, it was a inter- very interesting conference um, uh, and a lot of interesting discussions. And, and so you know, I, I just essentially set out to interrogate what I thought were some of the, the kind of weaknesses in, in that point of view uh, vis-a-vis tourism, particularly it's foregrounding of, of discourse and, and representation or looking at power from a sort of cultural point of view, not so much to dismiss it, of course, but to, to look at the kind of absences within that discourse um, and within those you know, emerging analyses. Um, and then it just took me into you know, the, the kind of paper which emerged. So the, I actually presented something at the conference, which was perhaps slightly different. It was, oh, it was rather cheesy title, Hosts of the World Unite, a play on Marxist kind of famous phrase, Workers of the World Unite, because I was, you know, I've always been interested in labor. You know, I had the good fortune to be supervised by, you know, the late Alan Clark, who sadly passed away uh, this year. And his supervisor was Stuart Hall, who I also had the good fortune to meet. And I was very much schooled in that kind of, you know, Marxian and post-Marxian kind of sociology. And, and so I was kind of applying some of that thinking here in a very free space because it, it didn't, it had nothing to do with my PhD research, which had finished in 99. 
nor indeed what I was working on at the time. As I said, you know, we, we had a lot of freedom to kind of engage with ideas and write things. And I was working at the time actually on a European Union project on heritage. So uh, nothing really to do with this. But I just took the opportunity and it arose and, and, and started to put those ideas to, to paper and have actually then, you know, in a way set, set me up for, for subsequent writing. And, and so, I, I, you know, I've continued to kind of plow that furrow in, in a little bit more focused sense. Yeah, sounds fascinating. I mean, of course, I really, really appreciate your article and work. And also, like, as a young scholar with lots of pressure for, you know, university measurements and yeah yeah i feel like we don't you mentioned the free space but i feel like we don't really have the free space anymore as a like, critical scholars right i mean it's even difficult to be all critical scholar whatever that means really you find that do you yeah that's interesting you say that and i and i can and i can understand i can see where you're coming from i feel the same pressures and in, in you know where i work previously where i work now it's not it's not explicit obviously but you're kind of given a steer, aren't you? Particularly when, with, with regard to impact, you know, that's kind of the next sort of layer of, of disciplinary power, if you like. <laughs> um, and it, it does, you know, and it does kind of create these constraints. Um, and as I said, you know, 2005, when I started writing this paper, um, they, they were there. That said, you know, uh, and, and, and who knows is whether it's a consequence of, the stage I'm at in my career, you know, I work in a department with with you know a lot of political economists. I'm a I'm a reader in political economy, and and so you know we don't I don't teach tourism anymore for at the moment specifically, and and so you know it's kind of nice because there's a, there is actually quite a lot of uh, critical engagement, particularly in an applied sense because we teach policy and economic policy, and there's plenty to talk about in the UK, isn't there? So. Yeah, but nevertheless, that serendipity, perhaps, is you don't have the kind of luxury of sort of thinking, oh, you know, let me just write a fanciful paper on on, on, on this or that. Um, and also credit to, you know, notwithstanding the critiques I've, I've set out here, but credit to, you know, Irina Atelievich, the late Keith Hollandshead, you know, one has to kind of recognise Keith's contribution. Keith was a good friend, you know, great scholar. Uh, and, and thanks to Keith, actually, I went to one of my very first conferences on paradigms in 96 in Finland and kind of just thrust into this sort of, you know, lion's den, very nice lion's den, you know, with, with the kind of big thinkers of tourism, social sciences, Peg Swain, Graham Dan, Marie-Francoise L'Enfant, and, and, you know, really, really kind of, you know, got me thinking hard about the kind of theoretical framework that I wanted to work in. But hopefully there are still some, some cracks and spaces. And I, and I, and I do have colleagues with whom I work in Spain. I'm going there the week after next to Barcelona, which is, it, it, which is evolving into quite an interesting sort of critical mass of scholars between Barcelona and Mallorca, economic geographers and environmental geographers in the main, uh, where there is actually some really interesting, you know, critical, indeed Marxian work being undertaken, you know, no holds barred. So it's it's perhaps a bit more difficult, but, you know, we, we work within those parameters to the best we can. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know this might be a strange question, but Raul, do you think it's just e easier or more accommodated to be critical in continental Europe than the UK? That's not a strange question at all. <laughs> that, that, no, well, 
That, that's a debate that's been had for 150 years, if not more. Okay. Um, if I may, you know, Marx, when he arrived in Soho in the 1840s or 1850s, I believe it was, he lived in Soho for a short moment there. And he met um, a number of English radicals, the Chartists included, and he found them to, to be very underwhelming um, because they were mainly interested in drinking and greyhound racing. He, he recounts this somewhere in, in one biography or another. So that, that, that schism between the, con the continent, continental Europe and, and England has always been there, um, perhaps overplayed sometimes because, of course, there's some fantastic kind of heritage of critique going back even further back to the English Civil War, if we go back that far, 17th century. But today, yes, it's, it's hard to say. I don't want to kind of, you know, make a kind of uh, an unequivocal statement on it. But uh, I do find to some extent when I'm in so the Netherlands, although there's a, there, there are a lot of constraints emerging in the Netherlands or have been, and, you know, with metrics and performance management and all these sorts of things. And indeed, Spain, where I spend a lot of time. But there's this... I mean, I found it easier to, or found more people who are reading and thinking about Marx in the context of tourism. You know, I, I haven't found that in the UK. Now, in political economy and development studies, for sure. You know, the UK has some fantastic thinkers, um, Sussex, SOAS, LSE, Manchester, um, working in that tradition. But, you know, for, I don't know, I haven't given it a great deal of thought as to why that is. There are you know, different theoretical currents at play and a predilection for certain ways of thinking than indeed others. Indeed, when I was at East London University, I worked with a fantastic um, political economist, Massimo De Angelis, who um, has now retired, but, but, but some of the most fantastic open plural Marxism that you could possibly read. Um, influenced by the brilliant Silvia Federici, the feminist Marxist economist. So it's there, but yeah, you know, um, you know, no one's going to say you can't, you know, you can't publish a, in a new political economy or, or, or some of the top ranking politics journals. You can you can get a very critical paper in there. Tourism's funny. It's it's slightly different. I, and, you know, I, I'm an editor myself. And so, you know, there is, of course, no there are no gatekeepers, theoretical gatekeepers, if, if we were to call them that. It's just that some areas of the theoretical canon are not well as not well received or, or or apparent as others so yeah I, I don't think there's any kind of explicit barriers to it but maybe it's more internalized and and you know maybe it's easier to do sort of more empirical kind of very structured empirical papers and discuss findings and and, and, and push them out as good as they might be but maybe there's less sort of uh, scope for that kind of deeper critical theorizing which, as I said, that CTS conference did a very good job in kind of you know bringing that together. And the ISA, I must say as well, which the International Sociological Association, RC50, which I've been a member of since 96, was also a really interesting kind of forum for debates every two years, particularly when it was, uh, when it is, alongside the, the, the kind of global conference, you know, so, you know, we had, um, I remember in Montreal, 98, you know, you had Dean McCannell and you had John Uri and then Leslie Sclair, you know, Marxist political economists in the same room at the same time, you know, these sorts of things. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't get about as much anymore, but, you know, maybe it's happening, but I haven't seen it, at least not recently. In Barcelona this summer, yeah, there was some, there was some, some, some really interesting things going on there. As I said, there is, there is some sort of energy there that, that I know of, but there might be stuff the other side of the world that I, say, I just don't get to the other side of the world anymore yeah or if people 
you know, listen to your our podcast now or read read your article again. Maybe they will start thinking about this. That's what we we're hoping for. Um, well, I, I assume there's people reading the article. I don't know, <laughs> but uh... they should. They should. Right? But after this interview, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I know we've been talking about this a little bit, but can you briefly describe the theory or concepts that underpin your work? Well, yeah, as as you know, as demonstrated in this paper, you know, I took a very explicit sort of historical materialist uh, epistemology, um, and one of the things I wanted to do was to kind of, in, in, in so many words, I mean, it's obviously a short paper, but I, I subsequently went on to to write a couple of other papers and book chapters. To, to sort of demonstrate the, the versatility and the diversity of Marxian thinking. Um, and what I saw to be um, an element of caricaturing of, of, from an anti, let's call it an anti-structuralist point of view. And I thought, I mean, I think we've actually got beyond that now. So I think to an extent, the current situation vindicates that kind of structural thinking. I prefer to call it materialist because Marx himself you know, would write from that framework and Marxian scholars refer to themselves as materialists, looking at kind of the material basis for human social relations and, and economic production. So I sort of took that as my point of departure. And I also wanted to kind of introduce perhaps a little bit more explicitly some sort of Marxian concepts into a, a tourism context, because really they hadn't been. There, of course, have been some great political economy scholars, and I think everyone would recognize Stephen Britton as one of the sort of, you know, main kind of influences. So he was mine as, as well as many others. But he took a very much a neo-Marxist approach. And, and that was a, an important point because, you know, neo-Marx, without getting into a kind of an arcane theoretical discussion, but neo-Marxism, you know, it, it speaks to dependency and underdevelopment theory. And that is not the tradition that I, I, I'm working from. There are, there, are, there are pros and cons, and they've been endlessly discussed in development studies and indeed in tourism. You know, my late friend and mentor, David Harrison, we, we'd, we'd have some endlessly entertaining discussions in the pub and in, in writing, going backwards and forwards. And indeed, you know, he was one of several scholars who undoubtedly forced me to think harder and more deeply about the, the validity of, of, of this sort of epistemology and, and sort of overall paradigm. But, you know, and I've tried to stay open to to other ways of thinking. Of course, you know, Foucault is extremely influential in tourism, social sciences. I have my issues with some of the aspects of Foucauldian, what I would call backdoor functionalism that creeps into his work. Um, I haven't read extensively as much Foucault as I have Marx, because it's also important to say it depends what you're thinking about. And I tend to think about the kind of dynamics of capitalist tur tourism capitalism in southern europe you know so that's a very specific historical geographical context it's not to say that that is necessarily the best lens through which to understand you know small-scale enterprise in rural china um, or, or somewhere else you know so of course there are going to be you know other paradigms and perspectives but i think there is a very rich debate within marxian scholarship um, and indeed if you if you're looking at the kind of development politics political economy realm Nobody would even question that. It's just not even an issue. But it becomes an issue sometimes in tourism studies. And I'm kind of really curious. So, well, you know, if you go to, I go to, you know, international relations and politics conferences, and nobody bats an eyelid because it said, well, well, of course, this, this is, this is a deeply influential work, and it continues to be in, in, in the recent work of, 
many scholars, including, of course, Ben Selwyn, who is Tom Selwyn's son, who's now professor of politics at University of Sussex. So, you know, really interesting lineage there. But to my mind, one of the most brilliant scholars living today is Nancy Fraser. Uh, you know, Nancy Fraser's kind of radical eco-politics is rooted in feminist Marxism and indeed other kind of radical critical theory. Um, and her recent book, Cannibal Capitalism, is an absolute must read for anyone who wants to understand capitalism and crisis and, and, and of course, the climate emergency. Yeah, so that, that was essentially, you know, my kind of approach. And, and also, you know, when when I was writing, it was just post, it was post September 11th, and it was the kind of, you know, the, the war on terror, as it was called, and the attack on Iraq and Afghanistan. And I was, you know, kind of slightly involved in some of those movements. Uh, and, and then, of course, leading up to, the financial crash of 2007-8 and i just you know rightly or wrongly i just thought you know at the precise moment in history when we are being torn to pieces by an unhinged financialized capitalism we are going down a rabbit hole of as i saw it or maybe i'm wrong of, of looking at kind of discourse and representation which of course has value no question but we don't do that to my mind at the expense of thinking about and trying to conceptualize how that connects to the material institutional logics of power. Um, and Naomi Klein summarized it brilliantly as she always does. Um, and I quote it in the article. So we're too busy uh, looking at the pictures on the wall to realize the wall had been sold right, to a hedge fund or something. So, so that, that very phrase, which comes from No Logo, a book I read you know, 20 years ago, was, was one of the kind of key phrases that sticks with me and I always kind of remind myself of it and I think that sort of interplay between you know of course representation and, and cultural values which of course have a role to play in the reproduction of capitalism you know I mentioned Sylvia Federici in her brilliant book Caliban and the Witch you know it's about witchcraft and what is witchcraft witchcraft was a kind of a means of proletarianizing rural women and then sort of accusing them of being witches and then incarcerating and murdering them the church you know, pretty much sanctioned prostitution because it didn't want women to go into heretic sects. So, you know, there is a connection between the way in which, you know, uh, discourses emerge and the underpinning kind of materialism of, of um, you know, power or however that sort of reveals itself. Now, you know, gone off on a bit of a tangent, uh, witchcraft and tourism, maybe there's an article in that. You know, one of your questions was about the background and context. And, and so I, I, I went to the Canary Islands in 1990 or 91, um, to do my master's and then I, I returned to start the PhD field work and I pretty much spent the entire decade there. I didn't stop doing field work till 2004 in the Canary Islands and that really forged a lot of the thinking so from the kind of you know uh, social context into the literature rather than the other way around um, because you know looking and seeing at the transformation of the Canary Islands at, at the point in time when tourism was going through one one of its sort of really aggressive accelerated growth phases, you know, post uh, sort of early 90s recession. And it was paradoxical, wasn't it? Because it was post the Earth Summit in 92. And I was involved in the NGO tourism concern at the same time. And we were campaigning and lobbying on labor rights, human rights, all kinds of things. And they could hear all this sustainability discourses emerging. And yet at the same time, and just looking at what's going on on the ground, and the, the coastline of Gran Canary, where I was living, literally being ripped asunder to build, you know, endless condominiums, artificial beaches, marinas, and goodness knows what. So I was thinking, well, you know, we've got responsibility to address that. And, uh, and, and that's kind of, that was the, the trigger, if you like, 
Um, and, and to me, you know, historical materialism and kind of Marxist political economy seem to be, you know, the, the most appropriate framework. And, and as I said, I was, for better or for worse, through my endless conversations with Alan, you know, one of my supervisors, um, who I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I'd, I'd been schooled in Gramsci, Hall, Marx. You know, so that, that, that was my kind of schooling, if you like. Yeah, wow. So fascinating to listen to. Before we go, um, do you have any key takeaways for listeners? Maybe two, if I'm allowed. Um, <laughs> if I'm, just, just, well, I think, you know, I'm very, uh, uh, it's very um, humbling to know that people still read that. And, I, you know, I, 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 without any kind of sort of... Um, hint of false modesty or anything i you know I, I, as i was saying i just wrote it because i was just kind of i had something to, i thought i had something to say and, and, I, and that that forum seemed appropriate and then that, that that discussion that was emerging around that time and, and, and the historical context of the time sort of made made it seem like the right time to be writing that and i think to some extent it's been vindicated because a number of scholars have gone on to to actually in, in a far more eloquent and, and forensic way write about tourism and capitalism. I'm thinking of, you know, Rob Fletcher, for example, at Wageningen University, you know, it's brilliant stuff on, on, on um, particularly uh, looking at ecotourism, but much more than that. And even you know, post-capitalism, so the people in Barcelona, Ernest Cañada, Ivan Muri of the University of Balearic Islands, Masia Blázquez, Asun Blanco, you know, brilliant scholars who are just doing fantastic work. No thanks to me, I have to add. I'm just saying I, I think some of the ideas that I was looking at, uh, which are also influential in their work, are, are being vindicated, uh, particularly in the context of a very material crisis, which is the climate crisis, amongst many others. And as Nancy Fraser's work demonstrates, that is, you know, it, it's embedded in an intersecting series of crises, financial, economic, pandemic related as well. We can even relate that to our kind of uh, economic model. So that's one thing. And second, I would just say, yeah, don't, don't, oh, I know it's difficult to say, it's easy for, or easy for me to say where I'm sitting, kind of looking at oh, where am I going to retire to, is that don't let the metrics crush your spirit and don't let the metrics kind of stop you from writing about what you really want to write. Because if I hadn't been able to, 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 to write what I wanted to write, there is no way I would have been in academia for 30 years. I would have, you know, well, I don't know what I would have done, but anyway. So much for saying that. <laughs> Seriously, you know, and, and there, there is still lots of fantastic work about every, you know, there's great, I'm not going to reel them off, but we know, you know, we all have our own favorites and influences, but I think the field is actually richer and more diverse and more theoretically vibrant than it was, you know, 20 years ago. And that, that's a testament to the fact that many people still are you know, doing great work and, and, uh, and also perhaps even, you know, more engaged with, you know, the issues in whatever capacity, advisors, consultants, activists, uh, and people out there doing great work um, and sort of spreading the word through various media, not just academic journals. Thank you so much, Raul. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been inspired by your work anyways, but it's so nice to kind of have a conversation with you as well. And there's so much to actually digest and think about after this well well thank you so much that's very kind of you and it's you know you ask an academic about their work they're not going to show up are they um so it's 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 great it's great to meet you and um yeah i hope to see you face to face in person even though we have been face to face without realizing it but you know um i shall look out for you for sure whichever next event where we might be in the same space